Well, we're now going to spend some time looking at God's Word together. So if you've got your Bibles with you um, and would like to join me, we're going to be looking this morning at Revelation chapter 2 and verses 18 to 29 together. If you've got these um, sermon notes on your seats, feel free to use them. If you'd like to make notes as we go along, they've also got questions on them that you can use in home groups or um, for your own personal reflections um, throughout the week as well. Um, You can also find those online. If you're with us online, um, you can go to the resources section of the church hub and you'll find them there. If you're here in person or on a phone, you can find them there as well if you prefer to make notes in that way. Um, But let's listen to God's word together um, and then we'll spend some time listening uh, to what God might be saying to us uh, through this passage together this morning. So, Revelation chapter 2 verses 18 down to the end of the chapter. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches who know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not listened to Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll be aware that we're currently in the middle of a series looking at these seven letters uh, that Jesus reveals to the Apostle John when he's on the island of Patmos that are letters to the church. And uh, we're going through Revelation 2 and and then Revelation 3 where these letters are shared with the church to see what letters or what messages we might need to hear or what God might be saying to us through these letters today. So we've already looked at the letters to the church in Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, and today we come to this uncomfortable letter to the church in Thyatira. 
whilst I was on sabbatical, I listened to a sermon series that was based on this, the, these letters, and time and time again, I was struck by just how relevant these, church, these letters were, not just to the church 2,000 years ago, but also to us today. So today, as we look at this letter to the church in Thyatira, we're going to see what it is that we can learn as we seek to live for Jesus, as we seek to hold on to him and worship him here in North Cambridge. But before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll uh, go a little bit further. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it speaks to us, for the way in which it reveals who you are, the way it encourages us and convicts us to follow you more closely. And Lord Jesus, through this time together now, as we look at this passage, we pray that it would not just be my words that are speaking, but Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to hear from you afresh. Lord, we come to worship you. We come to know you, to hear your voice. Lord, we are here to listen. Would you come and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've looked at each of these churches, we've considered a little bit of the context and the background to the churches that we've looked at so far. And this passage that we've come to look at today is not the first time that we hear about the church in Thyatira. Um, for those of you familiar with the story of Acts 16, you'll remember that in Acts 16, we hear about a person called Lydia. Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth, and she meets with the apostle Paul in Philippi. But Lydia wasn't from Philippi. Instead, she was from a place called Thyatira, and she invites the Apostle Paul to go and stay with her, which he does for some time. So it's fair to say that the, that the church in Thyatira was a church community that had been heavily linked to and heavily influenced by the Apostle Paul. This was not just sort of like a church that had got some dodgy teaching. This had had one of the church's founding fathers plant it and invest in it. But other than that, there's not a great deal else that we know about Thyatira. There's little archaeological significance to Thyatira. Lydia was going to Philippi to conduct her business, so it's unlikely that Thyatira was a great successful trading re region as some of the other churches that these letters are written to are. In fact, in worldly terms, the church in Thyatira might have been seen as pretty insignificant. Certainly compared to the church in Pergamum that we looked at last week, which was this great place of power and influence and education, Thyatira was completely the opposite end of the spectrum. It had little significance to the wider world. Who really cared about the church in Thyatira? And that's really the first encouragement, isn't it? Who really cared about the church in Thyatira? Well, Jesus cared about the church in Thyatira. Of all the churches he could have written a letter to, to encourage, he chose to write a letter to the church in Thyatira. Every church, regardless of its size, regardless of its influence, 
regardless of resource and the ability that it has, every church is significant, just as significant as any other. And so Jesus sends this letter to speak to the church in Thyatira. And that's not the only encouragement that we see here. Jesus once again speaks, writes to the church, and before he gets into the harsh words, which we'll come on to in a few moments' time, Jesus, first of all, wants to make sure that this church knows that he's speaking to them from a place of love. Jesus says to the church uh, that in verse 19 that he sees them, that he sees their service and their perseverance. He has even seen the improvement that they've already made. I love that. He writes this really difficult letter to them. But he says, you know what? You're already making progress. You're already better than you were. You're already on the right tracks. So keep it up. Jesus cared for the church church in Thyatira. He loved them just as much as any of the other churches that we have already seen. And so then Jesus moves on to the more challenging areas. And it's clear within this letter that one of the key characters in Thyatira was this person called Jezebel. Now, it's unlikely that Jezebel was her actual name or their actual name. However, to understand the rest of this letter, we need to understand a little bit of the background of the cultural um, dynamics in Thyatira. Thyatira, as I've said, would have been a working class town. So if Pergamum that we looked at last week had, was very similar to the, the gown of Cambridge, you know, the, the, the town, town and gown divide, Pergamum represented the university and the, the majesty and the intellect of central Cambridge, whereas Thyatira would have been much more the town outside of the spectrum. This was the working people's area. This was the, there was no great area of industry in Thyatira. The sort of people in Thyatira would have likely been farmers or laborers, people doing ordinary everyday jobs. But in this working class culture, it would have had a real impact on the way that Christians in Thyatira lived out their faith. In these working-class regions, many of the practices of day-to-day life would have been intertwined with the pagan culture that surrounded them. And, And we don't have time to go into the details of how this all worked, but this meant that the church would have regularly been dealing with the issue of how they related to the pagan temples in the area in which they lived. Everyday work, just being a farmer and trying to sell your crops, would have taken, this day-to-day business would have taken place in and around the pagan temples. So the difficulty of Christians living in Thyatira was just the reality of day-to-day work, going out and providing for yourself and for your family, could have very easily and very quickly led to pagan worship. And pagan worship meant that you were in a situation where as a Christian, you were finding that you were in situations that conflicted with the way that Jesus wanted you as a follower of Jesus to live your life. You would have very quickly felt uncomfortable doing uh, and work as a Christian in these settings. So as we understand a little bit of this context of the community in which Fire Tyra 
worshipped. It's clear that Jesus doesn't have much good to say about this person, Jezebel. So what was his issue with Jezebel? Why is he so firm in this letter? Well, just like the church in Pergamum last week, it appears that Jezebel was a part of the church family. She belonged to the church. But if you look at verse 20, it's also clear that she is sowing false teaching in the church. The pagan culture in Thyatira would have been a place that sacrificed food to idols, that would have practiced sexual immorality, and this was creeping its way into the church. Now, the reason that Jesus picks an issue with Jezebel is that Jezebel's message appears to be that, well, that doesn't really matter. She was encouraging the church that they didn't have to be distinctive. They could go into the pagan temples. They could sacrifice their food to idols. They could practice sexual immorality. And it didn't matter. It was just the way of living their lives. They didn't have any other choice. So just go on and do it. Jezebel thought that they could just carry on living like everyone else and conforming with the culture that was around them. Now, those of us who know our Bibles recognize that name Jezebel from elsewhere in Scripture as well. And it's quite likely that this is no coincidence. Um, if you're not familiar, Jezebel was a character in the Old Testament. You can read about her back in the book of 1 Kings. And Jezebel bursts onto the scene as she marries King Ahab. Uh, Jezebel was not a worshipper of God, but instead she worshipped a false god, a god called Baal. And Jezebel's influence, um, uh, as she ma- rubbed off on King Ahab, and he, as she married him, she moved his heart away from worshipping the one true God onto the worship of this god, Baal. And uh, Jezebel's influence didn't just stop with her husband, but this spread throughout the whole nation, taking a people away from putting their eyes on, G- on, on the God, or on the one true God, and fixing it again on this false god, Baal. Eventually, Jezebel became such a phenomenal figure in the land that even the prophet Elijah, this amazing, powerful, godly man, was terrified of Queen Jezebel, and who would have, without a doubt, killed him if only she could have got his, her hands on, on the prophet Elijah. Anyone who spoke truth to Jezebel became her enemy. She just didn't want anything to do with them. She just didn't want to hear it. She just discarded it because they became an inconvenience to her. Ultimately, both the Jezebel of the Old Testament and the Jezebel that we, uh, of this letter share a, a, a shared trait. And this shared trait that they have in common with one another goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And that is doubting truth. If you remember the snake in the Garden of Eden as it led Adam and Eve to uh, astray, it didn't say so by saying, you must go and do this. But instead, the snake said, did God really say? Did God really say you couldn't eat the fruit of the tree of life? 
he asked a question. He sowed a seed of doubt into the midst of the truth that God had shared with his people. Did God really say that you should not worship any other gods but me? Did God really say that the way you lived your life matters? Did God really say don't practice sexual immorality? The question of God, or this questioning of God, this doubting of God dilutes his truth. It doesn't care about what's right, what God has taught us. Instead, it exchanges it for a new enlightened approach, but a new enlightened approach that is in direct contrast to the principles that God has given his people to follow. Did God really say? Where might we be tempted to ask that question? What might God, where might we be tempted to say, did God really say that? Or can I save myself a bit of stress by doing this? Did God really say I have to do that? Because actually I don't really feel like doing that today. Did God really say I have to be different to the people on my street? Because I really just want to fit in. Did God really say? We need to be cautious of asking that question because it really matters to Jesus. Jesus cares about what we believe, what we hold on to as true. He cares about what we believe because it affects the way that we live. And he cares about the way that we live because how we live affects the fruits that we experience in this life. Jesus came to give us life and life in all its fullness. That life is found through listening to his word by standing in his truth. If we move away from that, we're going to move away from that abundance of life that Jesus has given to us. There is no greater way of life than that found through Jesus. However, if we chip away at how Jesus told us to live, if we're tempted to think that we are somehow more enlightened than Jesus himself, if we can think that we can question him and ask, did God really say that? Then we're going to quickly find that we're not living and experiencing that abundance of life that Jesus has promised to us all. Jesus' response to Jezebel is strong. It's striking. It makes us feel uncomfortable. He talks about putting her on a bed of suffering. He will punish her family for the false teaching that she's spreading. How can Jesus possibly be so intolerant of this woman? I like this quote by Darrell Johnson who says this. Here Jesus presents himself as passionately intolerant. Why? Because he loves the truth. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. And because falsehood and deception of any kind enslaves people, Jesus is passionately intolerant because he is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. Jesus is passionately intolerant of people being enslaved. 
Jesus will not stand for things that cause people harm. He loves you too much. He loves us all too much. He's passionate about all of us. And so when something comes in that has the promise of harming us, he gets passionately defiant in the face of it. When it comes to truth, there cannot be any compromise. Compromise is a lie. Compromise convinces us that it's okay to do something for the right, or, or to do the wrong thing for the right reason. And Jesus can't stand it. May we be hesitant to question Jesus. May we be hesitant to ask that question of, did God really say? May we be hesitant and cautious to compromise around what he has said is true. May we never compromise because the results of compromise can enslave us, can lead us away from that fullness of life that he longs for us all to know. Let's take a moment to consider the, da the damage that compromising on truth can make in the life of the church. Firstly, damaging uh, or compromise can damage the church by damaging the soul and the heart of the church. We are called to be the light of the world, a city on a hill. We should not retreat from the world and be just some holy huddle. We've got to go out into the world and be present in the world. But as we go out into the world, we shouldn't let the world define us. Jesus also tells us that we need to be salty in the world. We need to be distinctive. There needs to be something different about us as we go out into the world. We are called to be different, but we are both sanctified and sent out into the world. We need to get those two in different, or two different things in tension with one another. We can't go into the world and become like the world. We can't just stay a holy people in a little bubble over there. We have to come together and find that and, and live in both those things in unison together. Not only is the soul of the church damaged when we compromise, but the mission and the witness of the church is also damaged. We are called to be God's representatives on earth in our world, in our communities, in our workplaces. That's what we are as we follow Jesus. We are his representatives. We are, and as his representatives, we're called to work for, to establish his kingdom, to promote his ways. If we as a church decide to compromise on that, we will lose our focus. We will no longer work and establish and build God's kingdom but when we compromise from his truth, we will instead detract from his kingdom. And finally, compromising on God's truth is fatal to our freedom. Daryl Johnson puts it beautifully in that quote that I shared a few moments ago. Falsehood and deception deter us from embracing the freedom we find in Jesus. Instead of being free, it enslaves us. It restricts us. It means we see a former, just a, a, a small 
reality of what a greater reality awaits us if only we put our trust in the truth of Jesus. However, it's also important to recognize that as we don't compromise, Jesus too does not compromise. He has stern words about Jezebel. He's pretty harsh to Jezebel. He detests the way that she's behaved. He's passionately intolerant of her teaching for the damage it can do to others. Yet he still offers her the chance of mercy. I think verse 21 is one of the most amazing verses in this passage. Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Even Jezebel was able to experience the wonder and the mercy of Jesus. She just didn't choose to accept it. Jesus offers a line of mercy, of hope to everyone. Even Jezebel is able to come back to God. If you're joining us this morning, wherever you are, here in person, online, wherever it might be, and you're feeling like you're caught up in this mixture of what is truth, like you're feeling overburdened by questions of sound teaching, of the impact that's having on your life, you're feeling uh, like you're bound by ca- in captivity by some of this false teaching that you've heard in your life please know that there is a way back for you this morning. Please, this morning, let me assure you that the mercy of Jesus always remains. He will never compromise on that. All you need to do is be willing to accept and receive the mercy that he offers and let it change your life. As Jesus encourages the church to hold on to his truth, he gives them some instructions in verses 24 to 25, and he says this, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus wants nothing more from his church than to hold on to him. So what does the church already have that they can hold on to? Well, firstly, they can hold on to their faith. The truth of who Jesus had revealed himself to be to us. The truth of how he called them to live their lives for him. The truth that he died and gave his life for them and then rose again victorious once and forevermore. As we hold on, we need to hold on to our faith. We need to grip it tightly and not let anyone loosen that grip and ask us, did God really say? But we need to hold firmly to those truths. As we hold on to our faith, the church can also hold on to their spirit, to not be disheartened and frustrated by the tensions and the difficulties around them, but to continue to persevere, to continue to make the progress that Jesus had already praised them for making earlier in the letter. Jesus also calls us as a church to hold on with contentment. 
He doesn't want the church to just be focused on pushing forward and pushing forward only to get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. He doesn't want the church to do that which they are unable to do. But instead, he just says, hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have. Don't look for more. Just hold on to what you have. There will be times in all of our lives where that's true for each one of us here in our lives. It will be true for us as a church as well that there will be times where we long to do more. We have big dreams as a church. But sometimes Jesus just says, hold on to what you have. Don't worry about the dreams you have. I know your heart. I know what you're wanting to do. But hold on to what you have. Be content with where you are. Be content with me and I will sort out the rest. Focus on what God has already given to you and be content with that. Hold on to it. Treasure it. And as the church holds on, they can hold on with hope. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hold on to what you have and we'll give up the fight. But instead, he says, hold on to what you have until I come. As we hold on, we have hope because we've got back up around the corner. We know that we are not on our own, that Jesus, the one who rose again, who conquered all things, who has all power, all authority, whose name is the highest, the greatest, is worthy of all glory and honor, he's on his way. And he's coming to us, his church. And all we need to do is hold on and he will do the rest. And as the church holds on to their faith, Jesus gives them a promise that, they can, that is worth waiting for. Jesus finishes this letter to the church by saying, the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nation. I will also give that one the morning star. As we know throughout the book of Revelation, it's a book of imagery. And this image of the morning star is used again later in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn with me and look at it, you can find it in chapter 22, verse 16. The words will be on the screen as well. Jesus says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. This is the last phrase in all of scripture that Jesus uses to describe himself that he is the bright morning star. So as he promises to give this bright morning star to those who stand in his truth, he's saying that he will give to his church himself. In all the darkness that surrounds us, a morning star will continue to shine. A symbol of a new dawn, of a new era, of a new hope will continue to beam out into the life around us. If we hold on to Jesus, if we don't compromise, if we don't question and doubt his ways, then there is a bright future ahead for us because there is a bright morning star in whom we can place our hope. No matter how dark it might seem, the darkness has been defeated. A new era has been defined. 
by light and life, entering into it and being made available to all who hold on to Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise you that you are the bright morning star, that in you we can have hope, that the world around us does not define our future, but you define our future. You are bringing in a new era filled with hope. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, we once again return to you and we hold on to you and the truth we find in you. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness again for those times where we are tempted to compromise, to do that which is wrong for the right reasons, to question, did you really say that for whatever our motive might be? This morning we again invite your spirit into our lives, Lord. May your spirit of truth come and invade our lives. Jesus, through your spirit, would you help us to hold on to the truth we have in you, that we might know that hope we have in you, revealed throughout our lives, we pray. Amen.